Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Of all the things we ever see Jesus teaching or observe Jesus teaching, some that we are going to consider together today are the most mind-blowing, most mind-boggling. Because he's going to say some things as he speaks to his disciples and that crowd that had gathered in around them. He's got some things to say that would have absolutely dropped their jaw. in Matthew 5, Jesus told us that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed because they will be filled. As we finish Pastor Sam's message, The Righteousness of God, Jesus is telling us what we might have thought was righteousness was not completely what he considers it to be. And, and so the, the point is, it's someone who is actually looking down at another, devaluing that person, if you will, and considering them an inferior. Hey. That's exactly where the religious leaders were. They looked at the people that heard Jesus gladly and thought, that's because they don't really get it. They don't really know what we know. They're, they're not on the level we're at. And anytime we look at others as inferior, we're doing the very thing that he's warning us about here, whether it's coming out of our mouths or not. Then he says, whoever says, you fool. And this word, if you saw it, it's the word moros, from which we get our word moron. But, but there's another word that, that is very akin to it, and that's the word moral. And what this is talking about is the person that looks at another and judges them not mentally deficient, but morally deficient. Now, it's easy to see if someone's a drunk that they're a drunk. I mean, hard to hide it if that's what you are. If someone's just blatantly immoral and they're sleeping around and everybody knows it, that's hard to hide too. But when we sit in judgment on that person, I'm not saying we shouldn't tell people that that lifestyle is destructive and that it's, it's damaging, that it's defiling. But when we sit in judgment on them and feel superior to them, we haven't really gotten it. And that's why Jesus says, listen, when you're angry with your brother, when you call someone an idiot, when you call someone a moron, you are in danger, he says, of hell fire. Therefore, when you bring or if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. You see, when we are angry with or consider someone mentally or morally inferior to us, and we don't understand that our righteousness is not inherent, it is imputed, so every, everything we stand before God in, it's His anyway. That's why we're not superior. But, but when that happens, we are judging someone created by and for God. Someone loved by God, so much so that on the cross he prays, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And so he's saying, listen, if your brother has something against you, and it would be true, we'll see this in Matthew 18, or you have something against your brother, it doesn't matter. You bring your gift to the altar. Now, we don't have an altar, we've just got a little music stand, and, and that's because the temple isn't this building, the temple of God in our dispensation are, is the people and are the people of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches. So since we don't have an altar and we don't come to a temple, our altar is always in Scripture, the cross. When we come to the cross, when we present ourselves a living sacrifice, when we offer the sacrifice of praise, he says, if you remember that things aren't right with you and another, 
sometimes the shortest distance between two spaces isn't a straight line. Sometimes you've got to go to your brother in order to get with the Lord. And earlier we found in our last study or two that unless you're right with the Lord, you'll never be right with your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents. But here he turns that around and says, unless you're right with these guys, you can't be right with the Lord. So first we get right with him and then we settle with one another. And he says, we want to constantly be measuring that. We don't want to be paranoid about it, but we want to be open and honest about it. We need to be right with one another. And if we're not, he's saying, then we're not right with God. So he says, before you bring your gift or just leave it there and go and be reconciled. Agree, verse 25, with your adversary quickly while you are on the way. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you've paid the last penny. All he's doing here is dealing with a cultural issue that we have an application for. But in their culture, the, the city fathers hung out at the gate of the city. And so if you had a dispute with someone, and rather than just suing them and setting a court date, you just grab them by his cloak and you drag them down to the city gate and say, we got problems, we want you to settle it. What's he saying? You'd be wiser to settle it before you got there. Why? They just might go against you. You might end up paying. Agree with your adversary on the way. If you're the one grabbed, make a deal. If you're the one grabbing, make a deal. Why? Because this is not the spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation and love and, and care for one another. This is us trying to get even or get right or make someone pay. And so he says, you will end up paying. Now, how does that apply spiritually? Because that's important to our study today and our purposes. Our adversary is the enemy, Satan. He, we're told, is our adversary. He goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And listen, when I am convicted by the Holy Spirit, I know it's him. Why? He always points me to the cross. And when I am condemned by the unholy spirit, he always points me to the law. But either way, I agree. If the Holy Spirit says, Sam, that, that was so out of my character and nature that so takes you away from being salt and light that attitude or that action or those words that's not me and if the Lord convicts me I'm quick to say Lord you're right forgive me I don't want to break fellowship with you I want to be right with you I want to walk with you I want to serve you and represent you I want to be all you've called me to be and if the enemy accuses me, you know what I say? You're right. You're absolutely right. I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have said that. Why? I agree with my adversary. It takes anything he has on me away. But if I justify my sin and rationalize my sin and blame shift, then I don't ask forgiveness. And it doesn't really matter. The source of the conviction or the condemnation, you just need to know that's the difference. God convicts, the enemy condemns. Either way, the solution is confession. You're right. The difference is Jesus already died for those sins. He has imputed a righteousness, a righteousness to my account, and it is so great that all the sins I'll ever commit will never exhaust its supply. Now, that doesn't mean I can run around and sin freely. That would be trampling the grace of God. That would be looking at the cross and saying, no big deal, he covered it. And I'll never do that, nor will any of us, if we're thinking right, do that. The grace of God brings us to our knees as we realize God's been so good. 
And, and, and so he moves from murder. Oh, and we've got to move. He moves from murder to adultery. And, and really from anger to adultery. And I want to see, you to see how closely these are connected. These first four, all of them really, but these first four especially, so closely connected. Because when you're angry with someone, when you devalue them, when you consider them mentally or morally deficient, and, and you know, you despise them as a result, that begins to lead you down the road of immorality. And here's how it happens. When you devalue the one you're with, you will begin to objectify someone else. And you'll begin to say, this person doesn't make me happy and this person isn't what they seem to be and this person, they're really not, we're really not compatible. And, and so you begin to look around and, and that's where it starts. And, and we need to see that Jesus, as he deals with adultery, goes to the heart and the core of the issue. You've heard it was said, verse 37, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's not difficult to grasp or understand. That means no sex outside of the marriage relationship, sex only within the context of a man and a woman married to one another. So he says, you know what the law says, you're not to commit adultery. But I say, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now again, uh, he isn't saying that anger and murder are the same. Certainly, on a physical plane, murder has to be worse than anger. But on a spiritual plane, the one who is angry and doesn't deal with it, murderer at heart. Certainly, lust on a physical plane isn't going to turn out to be as bad as adultery. If you repent of it and stop it, you check it, well, then your marriage and your relationships and your family may stay intact. But what Jesus is saying is if you have a problem with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So as far as God's concerned spiritually, the very looking at that woman, and gals, I'm sure it goes both directions. He's using the term no doubt generically. The very looking at that guy with an intent to lust after him and covet a relationship with him. He says, that's, that's, that's adultery in the heart. Now, Remember, the religious leaders are saying, I never murdered anybody and I've never committed adultery. And he's saying, yeah, but have you hated anybody? Have you lusted after anybody? And there's something else here. It's a bit subtle, but I got to point it out to you. I remember hearing some time back someone say, maybe I've heard it more than once, that it's not the look, it's how long you look. I want to tell you something. That's not really what this is saying. He's saying it's the intent of your heart. It's why you look, not how long you look. And here's the proof of that. In the little resurrection passage where John and Peter race to the, to the, uh, the tomb, hearing that from the women that the Lord is no longer there. John makes that little side note that they ran together and he outran Peter. And when he gets there, it says he glanced in. And then Peter follows up, runs right into the tomb. A real no-no, totally defiling, but he doesn't care. He gets in and it's another word for seeing. It says John saw, but it was just a glance. And then Peter, he scrutinizes and really focuses in on this deal. And then there's a third word, yet a third word for seeing that says John beheld with understanding. Now you would think it would be the middle word. You know, really focusing, really checking it out, really focusing in. That's not the word. It's just the word for glancing. There doesn't have to be any understanding to it. It's the intent he's about. And God looks on the heart, something we can never do. God looks on the heart. And he judges the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So if your problem is lust, he's saying you're an adulterer at heart. And there's a solution to that. 
You need a heart transplant. You really do. And that's the way it is. And he gives us an illustration of that, trying, I think, to just show us how serious sin is, how gross sin is, how devastating sin is. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, verse 29, pluck it out, cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you. One of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. What Jesus is doing here isn't teaching us to literally pluck out our eye and cut off our hand. That's obvious. What he wants to do is show us how horrendous and horrible and dangerous and destructive sin is. Because nothing could be more horrifying to me than to think of plucking out my eye or cutting off my hand. He's like, no way! But get this. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, man, you have cancer, but it's only in your eyeball. And if I pop that thing right now, you're going to be fine. You're going to say, go for it. You're not going to say, whoa, no, I had that eye. I, I like that. It's a blue eye. You're just going to say, go, take it. And if, if your hand is, is cancerous and, and he says, hey, if I get it today, it'll, your, your arm won't go and you won't die. That's what Jesus is saying. See, see, sin is spiritual cancer. And if you don't get to the core and to the root of it, you can't just wash up real good if you got cancer. You got to get rid of the cancer. And they were washing up outwardly, but inwardly they were defiled and full of dead men's bones. And so, so he's saying this is how gross sin is. This is how serious sin is. This is how horrible sin is. By the way, we know he's not talking literally because if you did pluck out your right eye and your problem was lust, you could still lust with the other one. <laughs> and if you were a thief and you cut off your hand, you'd just get better at stealing with this one. That's why it has to be a heart transplant. There has to be a change of heart. So that my, my heart isn't to murder and my heart isn't angry and, and devaluing and, and despising others. And see the process. You devalue and despise someone, you can end up objectifying the second, leaving the first, committing adultery with the second. And then what a logical progression this becomes. What a logical consequence of devaluing someone and objectifying another and then getting involved immorally with that other. You know where that often leads? Divorce from the first, a marriage to the second. And you know where that often leads? Divorce from the second and marriage to yet another. Now, here are the two things you got to know when it comes to divorce. Well, three things. One is, we're going to cover this in detail when we get to chapter 19. Jesus is using these as illustrations. It's not his intention that you try to figure out everything or learn all you can about these subjects, but to see how they relate to the idea of being righteous. And he's saying no one is righteous because... Even the one who's never murdered has hated. And no one is righteous because even the one who's never committed adultery has lusted or coveted. And then he says, furthermore, it's been said, verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a writing of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Note the connection. Hatred, despising, objectifying, adultery, divorce. It doesn't always happen that way. But you need to know in that day there were two schools when it came to this area of marriage and divorce. The conservative school of Shimei said that was 
moral impurity and moral impurity alone would constitute grounds for divorce. In other words, if there was adultery in the relationship, the two were no longer one flesh, the vow had been broken, the, the relationship had been torn and severed, and, and that you could divorce. Now, he didn't say you had to divorce. And you need to know that all sin is grounds for forgiveness because that's what God does with sin. He didn't say there had to be divorce, but he allowed a writing of divorcement. You can read ahead into chapter 19 for more on all that. Not now, but later. What he does say, if someone divorces for any other reason besides sexual immorality, then you are committing adultery. You, you severed this relationship without grounds for it. And so what he's saying is he agrees with Shimei. Now, Hillel, the more liberal school of the day, well, they would have more fallen into the category of irreconcilable differences. You see, what people get divorced for today. And by the way, if you're not yet married and nobody has told you, you are guaranteed to have irreconcilable differences. That's going to happen. If that were grounds for divorce and everybody acted on them, there wouldn't be any married. The, the divorce rate would be 100%. Because we have differences, and those are actually often a good thing. But that's a lesson all on its own and, and of its own. But, but, but here's my point, and here's Jesus' point. That if you engage in immorality mentally, it will often end up manifesting itself in immorality physically. And whether it does or doesn't, manifest itself physically, it will often lead to divorce because you'll be dissatisfied with this one, you'll be devaluing them, you'll be despising them, you'll be looking at that other one and saying, that's the person that'll make me happy. And if you're looking to be married, you're not looking for the person that will make you happy, you're looking for the person you're going to make happy, if you understand what's going on biblically. Two extremes we've got to avoid and we get to our last example and illustration. We have to make sure that we don't minimize divorce in our generation. I realize that many of you have been through the traumatic and tragic experience of divorce. And I'm not trying to add to your pain or sorrow, but if you justify and rationalize and blame shift and say it was none of me, it was all of them, you're going to carry things into whatever relationship you get into next that are going to destroy that relationship too. Your only hope of better relationships is to accept responsibility for your failure in past relationships. And so I'm not laying guilt on anyone. All I'm saying is if you've been divorced and you're blaming the other person entirely, you are really setting yourself up for, for problems. Divorce is never God's best, but it is permissible. He says in Malachi, he hates it. That means divorce is sin, by the way. If God hates something, you know it's sin. And so here's the good news. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And the other extreme in this situation is rather than making too little of it or minimizing or saying, well, everybody's doing it, is to make it an unforgivable sin. And you know, Jesus never did that. You need to know, though, God hates divorced. He loves people, whether they've been divorced or not. And when we look at someone and consider them inferior because, hey, our marriage worked and theirs didn't, we're doing the very thing he spoke of earlier. We're not the judges of our brother. They stand or fall before God. And the Bible says God is able to make them stand. So my job is to simply say, thus saith the Lord. This is how it is. Your job 
is to say, okay, Lord, man, I've been through this and, and it was devastating. I agree. And whatever part I played in the destruction of that relationship, Lord, forgive me those things. Because when you confess your part, not your partner's part, you'll find forgiveness and cleansing. And there's hope of right relationships. We'll cover divorce, remarriage, all those things in the, in the, in the end. But let's get to the last one for today. And man, I'm just a windy guy. Uh, verse 33 says, Again, you've heard it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Do you see why I wanted to get to this one? He says, listen, you don't have to take an oath. You don't have to make a pledge. You don't have to make a promise. But you need to know that those weren't required, though they weren't required in the Old Testament, once you made an oath or made a pledge or made a promise, you had to keep it. And since he's been talking about anger and adultery and divorce and such, listen, what do people do when they get married? They make a vow. They say vows. They say, I'm going to live with you and for you and bless you and I love you and, and I'm going to be long-suffering and patient and kind. And It's a vow. And nobody made you make it. You chose to make it. When you stand before witnesses and you say, I will. Yes, I do. Yes. Here he says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if you're thinking no, make sure you say no now. Don't wait till you get to the... I, don't, I hate to ask that question. Anybody here has any reason why these two shouldn't be married? I'm always afraid someone's going to say, yeah, me. And then what do we do? <laughs> but if you're not sure about marriage, here's a good way to avoid divorce. Don't get married. If you're not sure about that person, if you don't want to live just for them and with them and have eyes only for them, a one-woman man, don't get married. But if you choose to get married, you are making an oath. And Jesus is really saying, you know what it says, not to swear falsely, not to make an oath and then back out of it. But they had some loopholes. The religious leaders said, listen, you just it's okay as long as you're not swearing by God. So... He says, no, if you swear by heaven, that's God's throne. If you swear by earth, it's its footstool. By Jerusalem, it's his city. And then he says, you know, of course, this has changed over the years since dye and bleach. But, you know, you don't swear by your head because you can't make a hair white or black. Hey, you may get any color you want today. <laughs> but, but you know what he's talking about. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Here, here's the deal. Jesus' point, and that's why I wanted to get through these four, is that you have no inherent righteousness. And if you came in today thinking, I'm actually better than a lot of people, you're not. If you see people, though, that are trashing their relationships and they're messed up here and messed up there, you can thank God you're not doing that and realize you're better off. But it's a whole different thing to be better off than to consider yourself better than. See, that's judging them to say I'm better off. It's just saying, I'm, hey, I know that could be me. Were it not the, for the grace of God, that could be me. 
And so today the deal isn't to judge others, but to judge ourselves and to ask the ultimate question, do you possess a righteousness that's acceptable to God? Because we need the righteousness of God or we will never stand in the presence of God. We will never enter the kingdom of God unless your righteousness, unless my righteousness, our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you have no inherent righteousness and you get it, but you haven't asked for God to impute his righteousness, man, don't leave here without making that a done deal. And if you're a believer in Jesus, as we bow our heads now to pray, listen, this is so important. Pray first for those who are here in the valley of decision, who've never given their lives to the Lord. And then pray for yourself. Lord, Bust me where necessary. Convict me where necessary. I want to leave this place head held high, knowing if I confess my sin, you're faithful and just to forgive me, to cleanse me, to restore me, to renew me. Lord, I want your character, and I want to be salt and light, and I want a righteousness that's acceptable to you and demonstrable to all. Psalm 19 tells us the law of the Lord is pure and perfect. It makes the simple wise and it enlightens our eyes. And yes, it is the very best guide to right living that exists anywhere. My prayer for you, dear brothers and sisters, is that you would first seek the righteousness of Christ and in him you would be changed so the fruits of your lives would look like what we heard today in Jesus' teachings. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico and you can visit our website, ccchico.com or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.